Hi, I'm Rod Morrie, host of State of the Game, and you're listening to Feed the Ball with Derek Duncan on the Talk and Golf Network. Visit www.talkandgolf.com for more quality golf podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Feed the Ball podcast. This is episode 45. I'm Derek Duncan and today my guest is Keith Cutton. The word evolution can be a generic description of how a thing or idea changes over time. More specifically, it describes the biological process of natural selection or how traits that enable a species to thrive and adapt to a certain environment are passed to successive generations while the genes of those species less adapted to that environment eventually are filtered out. Does this same process, natural selection, evolution, apply to golf course architecture? Do cultural and societal trends, including economics and monetary policy, new technologies, the way people communicate, international trade, art movements, the demographics of our cities, have an impact on the way we design golf courses in any particular era? Are certain types of golf course designs, bearing particular identities and traits, better suited to certain periods? Keith Cutton absolutely believes so, and his recent book, The Evolution of Golf Course Design, traces how the practice of creating and thinking about golf courses has changed and mutated through time. Cutton's wonderful book, full of incredible photography and graphics, demonstrates how golf course designs continuously evolved in response to their environment, not just their physical environment, but also to the global, political, economic, and social environments amid which they're born. Cutton was finishing the book when I first had him on the podcast, episode 15 in May of 2018, and we touched on some of the subject matter then. Now that the book has been published, I wanted to have him back on so we could really dig into and put a finer point on some of the details. For me, this is all very satisfying because it's a different way to look at golf history and at how the game has developed and changed through time. So much of golf history is archaeology and crawling around in proverbial attics, and that's vital and important. But Keith's book, as you'll hear in this discussion, is one of the first attempts to synthesize all that information to tell a larger story of architecture. It's the big world view on where we are and how we arrived here. Keith's a talented shaper, artist, and designer, and with this book, he's established himself as a leading golf historian as well. You can order The Evolution of Golf Course Design at cuttinggolf.com. It is a must-have for any architecture enthusiast. So let's get to it. Here's Keith Cutton and me peeling back some layers of The Evolution of Golf Course Design and some other topics as well. dilapidated housing um there was no nightlife or you know anywhere to go on the weekends especially when the weather turned you know you'd have to drive two hours to get to a movie theater you know it's just stuff like that just after a while you run out of things to do um so we just we just worked um uh which is great i mean when the weather's good there's nothing there's no place on earth like cape breton and inverness it's the to me it's I'm an out, outdoors kind of guy. It's the most beautiful place there is. Um, when that weather turns, it's, uh, you know, Need when it starts out. raining, oh, when it starts raining, and what a lot of people don't know about Cabot Links either is, you know, two-thirds of that site was capped with clay. So when we got, you know, we, we made it look like uh, the rest of the site and spent a lot of time capping it and making all the details look like they've been there forever. But the fundamental was when, when it rained and it was still clay, 
it turned into a big mud puddle, mm-hmm. you know, it turned into a mud pit. And that was a lot of, a lot of, you know, two steps forward, five steps back kind of thing. Like, you know, it was when it rained and you had infrastructure and, uh, things draining to pipes, the amount of silt you'd have moving and clog, you know, trying to not have all your drain work clog up. Like, yeah, that's the, le- the, the side of golf construction that, you know, people like me never don't, you know, if, until you hear about it, you don't consider it. It's the, it's the unglamorous side, the dirty work, the, it's a dirty job, right? I mean, it's an incredibly hard and dirty job to build golf courses, especially the way, you know, in the design build method when you're really in the dirt. Yeah. And I mean, people sort of glamorize what uh, golf architecture is, um, you know, they picture and, and, and that's what golf architecture wanted to be for, you know, many, many years was this, you know, proper professional in office, you know, well-dressed white shirt, um, <laughs> yeah. like uh, engineering type business. Show up on, on the job site wearing a, like a suit and tie. Yeah. No construction boots. You're wearing loafers. You're, you know, you know, you're not ready to walk anywhere. That's not a cart path. Um, that's just not how I've been taught. And through all my research come to understand what golf architecture is and how the best courses are built. So, um, yeah, it's, it truly is construction. Um, you know, not all of us get blessed with, you know, pure Sandy sites, that uh, if it rains, and I've, I've got the benefit of working on some of those in the past where it rains three inches and you literally just wait in your truck for the heavy stuff to stop and you're back out in the equipment. Or sometimes when you got 150 feet of sand, you don't even have to get off. You know, you never see a difference. Right. It just takes it. And that's, that's incredible working environments. But when you've got clay, when you've got, you know, uh, bedrock, you know, an inch of rain is a big deal. That's so, the cool thing about Cabot too. Is you know you, you see pictures and you think about it and you and you compare it to Bandon Dunes or Sand Valley or Stream Song or something. You put it in that category, but the the site was very different. The soils are nothing like that. You talked talked about how a lynx was two thirds clay. I mean that's hard to work with that. And and to cre- you created something that looked like it was sand based, but it wasn't, was it? No. Um the site it takes was, a, it takes a lot of I guess my point is it takes a lot of engineering and manpower and this is the this is really what great modern kind of mi- minimalism I guess is is to is to take a site that doesn't give you much and make it look like it's a sandy coastal Irish or Scottish seaside links course yeah I mean Tom Tom Dokes defined minimalism probably better than anybody saying that uh, you know it's basically hiding your hand as a designer whether that's you're gifted a great site and you do the bare minimum to bring out the inherent attributes that make that site great, or you're given a mediocre piece of ground. And what you still do is highlight the best elements of that site or, um, make up for that elsewhere by still masking your hand as a designer. And that's the bit, that's the biggest thing we do. That's the biggest thing that we did at Cabot. Um, you know, the site probably originally before they mined it for coal for 50 years, was a varied, you know, there's a mix of sand because there's, there's dunes all along the beach. That's not created. Those are there. There's huge pockets of sand on that property. Unfortunately, when they, when they closed the mines, uh, that site was let just sit there for about 25, 30 years until the government had to do something about the, the coal mines themselves leaching. 
you know, uh, a lot of them were put right out under the, the ocean itself. And these, 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 uh, trenches, these, uh, coal mines had collapsed over time and you get the water coming out through it and it would, you know, coal is not a very nice substance and it would leach back onto the property and then down to the beach. So they, what they did is they selected a type of clay, not from the site, but elsewhere that was impermeable and capped portions of the site that were deemed to uh, have issues with that, uh, with leaching. So when we showed up, we had specific instructions not to touch that clay cap. Everything we did was built on top of it. We could do pipe in that layer, but it had to be reburied with the same clay on top so that that permeability wasn't jeopardized mm-hmm. um, or impermeability. So everything that you see sort of in that center area of the site um, was capped. And that was, the sand was local. It's literally, um, they bought a pit that is in between the two golf courses. So the, the sand's there. It's just a matter of how we use it on the site to sort of uh, make up for that man-made influence and then mask our hand as a designer to make it blend seamlessly with the rest of the property. Hey, you were just up at Cabot. Uh, what's, how, what's happening there now? Excited to be back. We're doing, uh, we've been given the green light to go ahead with a uh, par three course. Um, so this will be the third project there that I've had a hand in. And, um, we're bringing back the Cabot links, a team, mm-hmm. so to speak. Uh, Rod Whitman and Dave Axlin will be the uh, co-designers and uh, I will be helping with the, with the construction, the day to day, you know, shaping work. That's awesome. Is it 18 par three holes? No, right now it's 10. Uh, we've, cool. we've had, this is actually our fifth version, our fifth routing, um, and third location on the site for the par three. Uh, we started with one, if people are familiar with the property, there's, there's an area above the driving range that was considered an area down by the 15th hole that was considered. And where we are right now is basically above the 11th and 13 holes uh, playing around the irrigation pond on some really fascinating land. Um, when I was just up there, it was the first time that I'd seen the site cleared and it really gave me a lot of, <laughs> a lot, a big smile and a lot of motivation for what this uh, par three could be. Um, the ground is, I thought it would be, you know, sort of gently rolling. Um, there are some interesting sort of what we call sinkholes out there, just like pits where the water sort of goes down through the clay and bedrock and then out uh, underneath the site. Uh, they had that at Cabot Cliffs as well. But this site has um, two major washes going from the pond right across where all our rods, Rod and Dave's routing capitalizes on these features just incredibly, uh, where most of our greens and tees are situated right next to these uh, washes. And they're, in some areas, 15 to 20 feet deep. They remind me of like the Barrancas in California. And they're just, I think it's its going to be the defining uh, um, attribute of the site. I, I, know you, I know you think about kind of strategy and the exploration of strategy quite a bit, as, as a lot of other people do as well. Do you think that you know, we see these short courses popping up at, at the resorts and it's, first of all, it's, it's hopefully it's only a matter of time before we see these, these types of properties developed 
closer to urban centers. You know, it'd be so cool. I think I said yes. this to like on the last podcast with Jim Wagner, like, like, wouldn't it be awesome just to have the cradle, you know, within a two minute or three minute drive of some downtown area and you could just park food trucks around it and just have, you know, the local people just riding their bikes and playing hit. But for right now, they're mostly located at places like Cabot where you're developing it in Sand Valley and Bandon and so forth. But think of the exploration of strategy and, and what can be developed in that area. It seems like these short courses give architects and shapers and builders an opportunity to maybe explore in ways they they might not be able to explore if they're doing a full 18-hole course with a different set of demands. You don't have to do 9 or 18. You can do 10. You can do 17 like at Sand Valley. You can play around with forms and presentations of golf in a way that maybe you can't you know, in another setting or in another development. Do you feel like th- these might be the key to unlocking new ideas in, in golf course development and golf course design? I think it's the leading edge of making golf fun again. Um, the amount of options you can bring into a par three course, you know, you can sort of, you, you could turn the, the knob up to 11 or 12 on the quirk factor. People let you get away with more when it's a par three, not, not to make it unfair, but the amount of options you could put into a hole are quite incredible. And we're seeing that with a lot of these par threes that are being built. They're just interesting and fascinating. And, the amount of the variety of shots you can hit into holes is just infinite. And it's, uh, I, th- I think it's bringing a lot of that fun back to the game. We're seeing that, as you said, at places like the cradle um, and the sandbox. Um, and it needs to happen more locally. You know, example like Canal Shores um, in Chicago. I think that is such a good example of an urban setting where, and it's yet to be seen really, I haven't gone there in person. I'd love to see what they could do with that, with that spot of turning it up, like, you know, really playing with um, simple things like the bow lines and uh, bunkers and angles, you know, play, um, maximizing green shapes to really get interesting pin locations next to those hazards. There's so much you can do just with an existing course, let alone something you're creating you know, with this design build philosophy where you can really sort of push the boundaries, as I said, of how those holes play. And it, it's just about really opening your mind as a designer to not just thinking about this aerial target game and really, really exploring how you can allow people to move the ball along the ground. Yeah, it's fun when you go to the cradle or to the sandbox and you see there's, you know, there's a hole like it's 110 yards or 95 yards, you know, and, and one guy hits like a, a full sand wedge and the next guy takes a seven iron and, and, and bumps it up. So it bounces onto the green. And one guy takes a putter and swings his putter and rolls at 95 yards onto the green. I mean, that, that has got to appeal to every single person who's ever picked up a golf club, just to have all of those options in front of you versus when you go play almost any par three hole that's ever been built and you're standing on a tee and then you've got rough in front of the green or in front of the tee box and then you've got a bunker that's kind of shading the front and you've got one choice just to kind of hit a solid iron shot over the bunker, over the grass, onto the green. I mean, that just exactly what you're saying, that this has got to be a gateway, like a portal. These short courses exploring creativity and playability have got to be a portal into into taking golf and just introducing the full capabilities of the game to a wider general public who can 
who'll be they'll be helpless against its charms if we could if we could ever present this and put this in front of a mass amount of people yeah and it, it's something that's it's not new like I, I still remember early in my career when we were building sagebrush um going down with two of the guys we work with to stanley park uh in vancouver and there's a little pitch and putt course there that's been there forever and we you know we walked out of our hotel at like you know nine in the morning uh, I had two wedges and a putter, and we just had a blast, just hitting the. Hit, it, 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 it plays like the cradle. You know, you're hitting off, um, in well, it plays like the cradle in the winter where they're hitting off a mat, but the greens are spectacular, and I just had a blast. I was hitting all these sort of knockdown clubs, and you know, and at that time I hadn't played a lot, being you know a kid in university, and then, uh, um, especially working at a private club where I could only get out. Uh, a couple times a week and then uh when you get into this industry everybody assumes you play all the time but at sagebrush we were building a new course in the middle of nowhere so really we you know we're working six seven days a week uh but i could go there and not even being having my game really in any sort of form just get creative and have fun and watch the ball roll and start to play some interesting shots and those greens weren't even as interesting is what i've seen now being presented to golfers with these short courses and that's that's just so so great for golf if we can if we can really educate municipalities you know certain ownerships that own these urban centers for golf and really push this i think it's going to be the thing that grows the the game as much as uh, anything else right now you know we've lost a lot of these urban centers used to have caddy programs i know i'm going on a little bit of tangent here but the the caddy programs used to be most people's especially young people's exposure to the game they used to see some of these better players hit shots that they couldn't even imagine and shorter courses like this i think serve as the same option they're going to be out there walking they're going to be alongside hopefully if they're not just playing with the friends all the time they might go out by themselves and join you know different people meet people that they otherwise wouldn't normally play with and see different things, see different shots, see different, um, and, you know, even hit a bad shot one time. And it turns out the best they've ever played the hole because it rides up a slope and comes down to a pin that they never thought they could approach it that way. Um, the exploration, the idea of sort of the, the, the golf course doesn't present itself upon first view that it's an education over time something that reveals itself with study is can all be distilled down to these par three courses and i think that's very exciting you know where it's not just a you know your standard 160 170 yard par three that everybody you know pull your seven eight iron you know uh and swing away it's you know you're you're into these interesting yardages you know 80 70 yards where it's like a three-quarter wedge and there's just so many different ways to hit that i think it's so good for the game yeah yeah and you, and you just mentioned you know that, that some of these concepts are really not new they've they've existed they're just maybe being explored a little more creatively and, and fully now the the whole concept of, of your book is is this movement from the past through time and the design through time the title of your book is, you know, the evolution of golf course architecture, golf course design, and evolution has a very specific meaning. I mean, in a general sense, just as a word, it can just mean progression or, or development, which you mean you can mean it that way. But 
its true essence is in biology and the process of natural selection. And it's interesting to me that I was, I've, I've always, since I heard you writing this book and, and got my hands on it and was reading it, I, I've been curious to see if I could find strains of natural selection, that concept in golf course design. And I think you, I think you can. We haven't gone from you know single cell to complex life forms in golf course architecture. The jump isn't that drastic. In many ways, we have circled back to some of the principles that were existing, you know, had existed in the 19 teens and 1920s. And part of this golf course development story is reclaiming those. I think you'd agree with that. Is, is that that's part of the journey that we're on. And natural selection doesn't mean you're always progressing. It means sometimes mutations take hold and sometimes things are weeded out. And then we went through this weeding out uh, process. And I know I'm just rambling on right now, but I'm going to get somewhere. Where, where we've gotten today, and your book illustrates this in, in a lot of really important ways, is we've moved forward and yet we've also stayed kind of or moved back to this place that that's good for the good for the health of, of golf course design you talk in the book and you've talked elsewhere about what do we do with this information what now we're in this place what where do we go now and and i think your point you would say that you, we want to take the lessons from the 1920s, uh, 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 the things that, that we learned then, and continue to apply them in a, in a modern context. I know that's generic, but to illustrate that, and here we go, I'm going to ask you if, if you could use Cabot Links, for instance, to illustrate for us how you think a course like that that you're very familiar with and you played a part in creating illustrates this journey that your book takes us on from from pre-golf through the Victorian era, through the masterpieces of the Golden Age and all of the knowledge that was developed then through the middle century journey and into the 2000s. Does Cabot Links represent to you where we need to be going and how? Great question. And I hope maybe I'll just uh, edit out one. all of that rambling <laughs> and get right to your answer. No, it's, it, it's a great question. And let me say that you're going back to the title of the book. Um, the evolution keyword, the evolution of golf course design, uh, was specifically toiled over by myself. Uh, my dad was an environmental scientist for 40 years with the Ministry of Environment. Evolution, Bernard Darwin, the study of, or Charles Darwin, and the relationship with that with with Bernard Darwin is fascinating yeah. itself. But the theory of evolution looks at uh, organisms within a environment, and that they are products of their environment and that is very so that the characteristics that um allow them to as they evolve uh will have certain characters characteristics that tailor them to their environment and allow them to exceed or not um over or not over other species that aren't as tailored and that's that's that understanding is key when you look at the history of golf course architecture and those that were able to survive during certain eras, they were basically products of their environment and products of economies, products of social tastes, product of ally art forms and influences as well and mentorship uh, and media. All these threads I tie through the book really paint a broader picture of why the individuals profiled in the book and others that are just mentioned did what they did and how they affected each other. 
and it really does paint a bigger pi- bigger picture of um, what golf architecture is then now and hopefully where it could be in the future. And an understanding of that is something my sort of willingness to, uh, well, sensitivity to these things uh, comes from some great mentorship myself with Dave Axlin, Rod Whitman, Bill Coor, uh, on sites like uh, at Cabot. And Cabot Links, I really think, is can serve as a quintessential study of how those time-honored principles um, can be adopted to make a site work. Um, the biggest thing, and the thing I still take away, and you don't know this when you're when you're building it, you hope for it, you strive for it, um, is the fact that what Mackenzie, Colt, Thompson, Ross, all of them, all of them talked about it as far as the, what is the quintessential element that makes great golf? It is that you challenge the best player, but allow for the duffer. And Cabot has hosted um, PGA match play, um, Canadian level, you know, PGA tour match play events uh, and challenged those guys to no end especially when the wind picks up. But without that, even the green complex are are just so fascinating. You know, that's the work of Rod Whitman there that it, it, it really forces them to think about where their positioning is in the fairway and how are they approaching certain flags if they want to score. Yet the other thing I've heard about the links is that kids, beginner golfers, elderly can all go out and play around without ever losing a golf ball. The fairways are wide enough that it accommodates them. The tee positions are varied enough that there's there's no forced carries if you're playing the forward two set of tees. And you can just battle up ball along the ground and you know have the fun of riding these contours and trying to figure out how to get to certain pins. And the number of women that I've actually had come up to me, you know, wives of assistant superintendents and um, various people there that have just made that comment to me. I take more pride in that comment that the course is accessible than I do when, you know, a good player comes off and just says, wow, I got beat up out there today. The fact that it could do both, I think just speaks to the quality of the design. And then as far as everything else you can learn, just the strategies of where the bunkering is, there's no set bunkers at certain distances. The landscape is really, uh, brought that forward. There's no, there's no mathematics behind placement. It's just really about what is the ground dictating? What is, what is the ball going to do here? How do we structure this basically working from the greens back? If your greens are complex enough and intriguing enough to dictate, um, a variety of pin locations that require, um, approaches from different areas of the fairway, the whole kind of works for itself. You're not trying to, the biggest thing is you're not trying to dictate any specific strategy. We're not going out there being like, if you try, the only way to play this hole is if you fly these bunkers on the left, you get the best angle in the pin. That works sometimes, but it's a lot more interesting if you move that pin around the green that there's different ways of playing the golf hole. Um, and I think that's the biggest thing I took away from there with working with Rod and Dave and spending that much time out there in the field. I mean, we, when we were there in 2008, when I started Cout, I was the first guy on site. And we started clearing the project, and we got a call from 
Mike Kaiser's people basically telling us to go home, that there was something happening with the economy and we needed to wait this out. Well, the next year in 2009, I was one of the last ones to get out there because I'd done a, a planning uh, contract in Toronto with an, uh, an engineering firm to help get my stamp. But when I got back out there, we had a skeleton crew of guys and we continued to work that way throughout 2010, 2011. Uh, and eventually opened in 2012. And we were basically told to take our time, you know, to the point where literally I was a one-man bunker crew in, in 2010 and 11. And it, it, it shows in the product because the more time you can spend out there, the less rust you are, um, the more times you can tweak little things and just basically play you know, play with your machines, be in that sandbox and just get creative. The product just benefits for it, you know, from that, that uh, approach just immensely, especially when you've got minds like, you know, Dave Axlin and Rod Whitman out there, mm-hmm. um, sort of in your, your back mind, you know, as, and as a young guy, all I'm trying to do is impress them. So I'm driven by not just my own ideas, but, you know, uh, the desire to impress my mentors. So, and then you've got this relationship where I can see what they're tweaking of mine, what they're keeping of mine, and learning from that process as well. Okay, you know, not not being upset that they changed something of mine, but understanding why, and then knowing why they keep something as well, and then seeing how the whole thing comes together from a blank, you know, canvas to something where you're about ready to seed, and you can just see all the options out there. And like I said, you still don't know whether or not everything, all the all the the hours you put into thinking how this whole is going to play, you never really know till people get out there, and to have that that feedback of um, that the course is varied enough to to allow the the best players to be challenged, but the duffer to go around and you know, the high handicapper to still have a good good time. Uh, I think that speaks for itself, and those are the those are the values that. I sort of stress in the book a variety, you know, ground contour strategy and a variety of widths. You know, we, we talk about this whole, the one thing I talk about at the end is the danger of, you know, width for width's sake uh, right now in golf. And I think that's something that uh, uh, people need to look at with a critical eye. You know, something that works well on one project doesn't mean it's going to work somewhere else. And um, we this industry has spent too long looking at our neighbors and trying to keep up with the Joneses um, mentality and it needs to stop. We need to really, you know, I, I say on my website and I learn from my mentors that we build distinctive golf and I don't want to, we're not trying to duplicate what we just did. Well, that's an interesting, interesting point. You, you, you just, uh, really nicely laid out the reasons why, why Cabot links is a course that could be used as an example of this, this journey that evolution of golf course design has taken. Maybe even a product of natural selection is it's, gone through the metamorphoses and, and the mutations and come out with this very powerful piece of, of golf art and it's practical. Do you think going back to, you know, Cabot links, Friars head, Pacific dunes, uh, the courses of the early two thousands, this whole trend in naturalism, I call it neoclassic naturalism. 
Do you think that that style of golf, which does have elements of width and angles and creative uh, bunkering and the natural look and the variety of pin placements and it's hard to lose a golf ball, all these things that we, and I count myself in this, these we really appreciate about golf. Do you think that style of golf has achieved some level of market dominance right now? I know it's hard for you to get out and see a lot of the new things that are being built and a lot of the work is in, in renovations and restorations, but even in the renovations, to me, you start to see a lot of these elements incorporated where 25 years ago, the, the same project would have turned out a lot differently. But I guess my point, so what I, my question is, do you think that that style of golf has achieved, is the leading influence of design right now? It is because it's captured the, you know, it, it's captured the media's attention and anything that does that sort of takes the focus of the industry. Um, if you look at rankings, if you look at the magazine covers, um, Sand Valley, Cabot, they're right on the covers. Uh, they're, they're dominating everything. What, what Pinehurst is doing, you know, number four in the cradle uh, is everywhere as well. Um, and the, those, but the, the, lessons that, the lessons there from an architecture standpoint are very important. You know, we don't just do new builds. We do renovations as well. We, we, we finished, Rod and I finished the renovation of the Algonquin golf course last year. We're actually going back again to redo the 18th green not that we did before. Um, basically, we had a scope of work. We finished that, and they were happy enough with it. That they're bringing us back in for more. It was an old Donald Ross course that a Canadian designer in the 90s basically went in and completely changed. And we were tasked with the um, with the job of restoring some of the the Ross elements, even though they'd been pretty much, sadly, completely erased. Um, and we tried to reconnect the site with the, with the water more, you know, it's right on the Bay of Fundy and, um, the Passamaquoddy Bay actually, which is part of the Bay of Fundy. So, and then doing tree clearing to really reestablish views and coming up with a, uh, a, a bunker style and a shaping style that sort of reflected, you know, gave a little nod to what Ross would have done and, as an architect, the only reason I know that is because I'm well enough traveled that I've been down to, to Pinehurst and elsewhere and seen, you know, you know, not as maybe not as many uh, Ross courses as somebody that sort of makes a living doing nothing but Donald Ross. But I've seen 30, 40 Ross courses over the years and have a pretty good understanding of, um, you know, the, the variety in his portfolio. And I think that's that's the biggest thing that I think we're seeing now, as opposed to when the renovation market started in the early 2000s. Um, there was sort of this idea that this was the Ross look. This was the Thompson look. This was uh, Tillinghast. And people try to put these architects into boxes and whatever the big latest renovation was done. And if that was successful, well, we want the same thing. And... I think the biggest thing that comes out of my book is an understanding that these, these men, these and women, were in fact artists, and their influences and their ideas were dictated, you know, did, didn't stay standard. They evolved over time. They changed. They, they, they morphed uh, based on what they had experienced themselves, but also what was happening uh, on the site. They took a lot of cues from their environment when working with working with the landscape. And I think that's something we're seeing very much in golf now. Um, the understanding of the principles with width, 
the biggest thing when anybody, if you read the writings of the, the classic architects from the golden age, is they always talked about width and angles, but they, the bigger thing they talked about was variety. Uh, variety in length, variety in widths. You know, they, they wanted a hard hole followed by a breather hole. There was this sort of idea of, um, and Strantz actually, I remember a video of him talking about this, sort of the roller coaster where you've got highs and lows, ebbs and flows in a design. And that, that speaks to width as well. You need, in order to feel width, you need, tightness every once in a while and that doesn't mean it's penal in nature or you know people are losing golf balls there but there needs to be sort of an ebb and flow in the design that allows these highs to be felt you know you need the lows to have the contrast and that's all i all i sort of point out in the book is just have an understanding of this you know and hire people that seem to get it and i think people are getting it now um, sort of, you know, your Bill Coor, Ben Crenshaw, your Tom Doak, your Gil Hans, Rod Whitman. These guys understand that. Um, width is great because angles are necessary for great design. Uh, you can't move a, a pin around a green uh, and dictate different angles of play if you don't have the width. But that doesn't mean that every hole uh, needs to have that. You need to also execute shots sometimes. But there still needs to be a path for the duffer to, to get along. I spent a lot. Of, I've, you know, spent a lot of time thinking and talking about where we are and how we got here and 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 where we go from here. And that the concept of contrast that you brought out is very important to me. And it kind of just hit a note. Yeah, my question was, you know, do you think that this style of of naturalism design that embraces all the things that make golf kind of fun and enjoyable and diverse and playable? has achieved some sort of like market dominance and many people could argue not and bring up examples i happen to agree with you i think that it kind of has and my question then is is that a good thing you know if if even designers who don't have the the catalog or the experience or even the talent that bill core and tom doke have if they're going out and building golf courses that look like that and they, they're embracing all these philosophies and that type of golf is what is being put in the ground through new courses and renovations all over the place, is that good? Don't we need contrast? Don't we need contrast, not just in yeah. the, in the, from hole to hole, but from golf course to golf course? See, it's, it's like in the, what, I mean, golf is a copycat, golf design is a copycat business. You go all the way back through time, and there's somebody who came up with innovation, a good yes. idea, and other people fall in line. And then there's another innovation, and it, people fall in line. And you see it decade and through decade and era through era. So I'm just wondering, as much as these things are good and healthy for golf, these qualities that we've been talking about, it, isn't it also important that we have something that's opposed to that, that kind of comes to the forefront and provides something that contrasts these golf principles, even if it's not for everyone? I agree when it comes to the aesthetics. I think there's always trendsetters, and what we see is a mimicking of whatever the trendy style is of the time. Um, you know, you see this, you saw it with Colt, um, you know, back prior to, to, uh, to World War One and the naturalism that he was doing. Suddenly everybody else after, Mackenzie, you know, and all the guys sort of in the Heathland were starting to copy that style. Um, and then that was exported to North America, and then it sort of got adopted with, you know, there was still the, the McDonald Rainers that were doing 
they're completely wonderful and distinctive work. Um, but there was, and there's even copycats of that type of design. Um, we saw the same thing with Pete Dye when he sort of, you know, went off on his own and started doing bulkheads and everything else. The problem is people miss the inherent underlying strategies. I listened to your uh, podcast with Brian Silva uh, on my recent uh, trip out to uh, Cabot. And he said it quite well when he was talking about, uh, was he quoting About Bob the Cup? skeleton and the musculature and the skin? Yeah, the skeleton yeah. and the skin and the muscle. Yeah, I mean, that that is so important to think about the fundamentals. So variety, strategy, angles, contour, those are your bones. Everything else is superficial. And the style of good architects pick up on the superficiality based on their landscape. And I think a lot of what is mis being, mis being misinterpreted right now is that a lot of the sites that Kaiser is working on are sand and are very similar. He's building multiple resorts at, at the same properties. So the, the, you know, the magazine covers are being dominated by a similar landscape. Uh, um, but Cabot doesn't look the same as Bandit. Bandit doesn't look the same as uh, Sand Valley. And Friar's Head looks completely different than the rest of them. There's a rugged, rugged aesthetic because it's sand, it's water, you know, it's Oceanside, except for Sand Valley, of course. But it's still sand-based design, links feel. If you take, you know, Core Crenshaw courses elsewhere, if you look at, um, if you look at Kapalua, if you look at Old Town, if you look at, you know, the renovation there, although that's, you know, a renovation. Trinity Forest um, is a good one to look at. If you look at Old Sandwich. Yeah, if you look at Trinity Forest, like these are very different looking golf courses that were inspired by the landscapes, but that's an aesthetic. It's on top of the fundamentals of architects that understand the principles of design, these classic principles of design, the bones that make those courses great. And unfortunately, lesser, lesser designers, all they see, and owners, a lot of owners, a lot of club managers, a lot of members, they, all they see is the skin and they want the skin. But if the bones are not good, you know, the skin just never quite looks right. It never plays right. Um, it looks mm -hmm. like, you know, cheap plastic surgery. It, it just doesn't fit. You need to have an understanding of those, of that, those fundamental core principles. And I'm with you. I think, um, this current aesthetic is going to run its course, not because, um, there's, you know, there's still going to be great sites that Kaiser or other owners are going to find that necessitate that look. I just think the majority of renovations was left out there, this sort of plethora of courses that were built in the 60s, 70s and 80s, um, and 90s that really don't, aren't tailored to their landscape and don't have great bones. That's where the work's going to be. And it's not going to look like sand like like Bandon. it's not going to look like cabin it's not going to look like friar's head and people that try to impose that onto it i think are are going to fail um it's going to be people are soon going to realize that that was a mistake how what has been your reaction to the reaction of your book i've i've been overwhelmed by the uh you know uh, the feedback i've gotten um I, I pay homage to a lot of people in the book and a lot of 
people that I respect, uh, Ron Witten, Adam Lawrence, uh, Bradley Klein, Bill Coor, um, have had immense complimentary words when it comes to, to the book. Um, you know, the, the book started as something where I was kind of answering my own questions with this history and never really was determined to turn it into a book. It was something that just sort of happened. I shown it to a few people and they thought the research was, was quite fascinating. And thankfully when I showed it to Paul Daly, he actually put his, uh, seventh volume of, uh, golf architecture worldwide perspective on hold for me. That's how much he believed in the research. Um, and it's been something now I'm, I'm getting close to 1100 copies sold. Um, and the feedback just from people from all sorts of walks of life, architects, um, I just actually received a, a, a letter from a fellow Canadian architect the other day because, you know, he, he, he mentioned that it's one of the one of the top golf architecture books he's ever read. Um, you know, comments like that just humble me. Um, it was, it, you know, for something that I sort of crafted to inform myself uh, seems to be doing the same for others. And I think that sort of um, that became the purpose of my book is getting that sort of accessibility of knowledge and, um, you know, the one-stop shop of, uh, we could pick something up and feel confident in having a conversation with people that are a lot more informed than you have read, you know, have much bigger libraries, have more money to spend on, you know, a subject that can be quite pricey if you want to build a library. I really took it sort of upon myself to make that the purpose of the book. And my, my current target is I'm working with several uh, industry magazines, golf course superintendent magazines, and hope to make it, um, you know, find some ways to make it more affordable for, for that market going forward. Because I think it's something that um, golf architecture and maintenance has for too long been operating in these two separate worlds, you know, with architects feeling entitled to their opinions and um, the, the wonderful thing about design build is the way that we're in the site together working as a team. That's the way Rod and I work with our superintendents. And generally what it means is the superintendent has a, a better understanding of what we're trying to do. And we have a better understanding of what they're trying to do. And there's compromises in the field that work out to that benefit. And more knowledge is just power. Uh, you know, people have said that for years and, uh, hopefully the, the, the book is yeah, I mean, the, that purpose. The, the way you tackle the subject matter is fascinating to me. Uh, I'm programmed just naturally to think that way, to understand how history moves in cycles and how it, everything is, and ideas are informed by, by culture and society and economics and art. Uh, so I, I'm really fascinated with this. I think my, one thing that I wish the book would have done was, I almost wish you would have taken the, the, the biographies at the end and just cut all that and, just spent more time digging down into the into the the historical motivations and trends that that informed golf course design like for instance you know the 1970s has like a page and a half or two pages i'm like there's a book there and i understand the reasons why 
you know, you didn't or you couldn't do that. And you can you can explain that as 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 well. But I mean, I think for as as much as you've done, I wanted I wanted to get even even deeper. And I think and I think I know what you're going to say about this. But and that speaks more to kind of to my to my um, level of thinking and what I want. Um, but go ahead and explain like why you why you uh, what, what were the obstacles for doing a book that was purely about digging in uh, in uh, basically expanding the first half of the book and making that a full book. Um, the the biggest thing is just uh, appeal, right? Um, memberships at different courses, superintendents. Um, the nature of this business is that most people are associated with one club and typically that has at most a handful of architects. Most people's desire to understand everybody that's ever worked in the business is a lot smaller. And my thinking was the profiles in the back were geared at those that are members at certain clubs and really wanted to uphold the heritage of that club and understand how their club fit into the bigger spectrum of golf. You know, as far as the 1970s go, that was that is one of the it is the smallest chapter in the book. But if you look at why um, there was an oil embargo in the U.S., um, work came to an absolute halt, uh, uh, and I believe that was 1973. And the only real work happening in North America. Uh, was in Canada, and that's because we had a mini oil boom, uh, and that's when some of the first, you know, Nicholas's first course at uh, up in Canada here was was uh, developed, um, which sort of set this, you know, PGA Tour precedent and uh, tour players getting involved with design. But um, as far as do- you know, I've had the same feedback from um, Adam Lawrence, somebody that I really respect, the chief editor of Golf Course Architecture Magazine. You know, he wishes I'd gone it back deeper into the 1900s, 1890s, where I get into that whole arts and crafts movement. Right. And the important thing is when you're telling a book like this that, yes, there's there's chapters and really you could pick it up and either read a profile or read a decade. But you could also sit there and read it decade by decade. And it had to flow if if. You know, when you're writing a book, it's the same, you know, it's, it's different than an article when you can dive really deep into something. I had some bigger chapters that went deeper into the details on certain things. And my initial comments from other people that read it, like Bill Coor, was you get lost. You, you know, it's hard to get out of, you know, if you dig too deep into the rabbit hole um, in certain areas, you get lost. And it was really something where I wanted to provide enough detail that it painted that full picture. And if you needed to get deeper into anything, especially with the external influences, um, you know, certain designers, allied art forms, there's so many other books out there that you could pick them up. And I referenced them in the back of the book. Um, the purpose of this was to serve as golf architecture 101. You read this, it sets your foundation for sort of learning everything or getting grounded in everything. And you can grow from there. If I had dove too deep into certain decades, um, and especially external influences, we would have lost those those other threads that I'm trying to paint through the whole book. And it just became a balancing act. And I don't deny that there's certain things that I would have loved to go into deeper myself. Um, but you just get lost in the details. It is definitely slanted toward uh, pre-1940 architecture. 
I mean, probably if you just did a page count, I didn't do it, but it, it's probably, uh, it, it's overwhelmingly like from the beginning of golf up to that period. And then when you get to like the 2000s, it kind of like you flesh that out pretty well too. Is Do you think, is that because by 1930, whatever, everything that, that you consider important to golf course architecture had kind of been established by that point? Uh, the biggest thing, so what, Originally, when I did the thesis, I had to defend every, everything that was put into the book. So who who I was profiling, or not in the book, into the thesis. Um, I had to sort of define who was worthy by some sort of metrics of profiling. And a lot of that had to do was came back to, to rankings and courses that had sort of um, defined an era or a region. And the architects behind those became the ones that were profiled in the book. Um, I'm not taking away anything. And I say this right in the, the preface, and it's, it's very important for people to read the preface of this book because it sort of paints the picture that I'm not – those profiled in the book are not the be-all, end-all of great architecture. You know, there's certain names that either for the size of the book I had to remove profiles or just for their sort of – their area of work – didn't really serve to influence the greater industry. And that is what the book is about. It's, it's looking at the, in, the evolution of the industry itself. And unfortunately, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, it really comes down to a few names that really dictated everything that was going on. So it's not a slant on anybody else that was doing work. And this is exceptional work that would have been done by others. Um, but unfortunately, that was under the radar and either didn't uh, suit social taste the way that those who did end up dictating the industry were put into the spotlight because of that. It also goes back to the availability of information as well, don't you think? You know, the, that period up up to the Great Depression has been researched. Uh, there, there, uh, people involved of golf course design and golf at that time were much more prolific writers. There was more, and you talk about this very, oh, yes. you know, very eloquently in the book about the, the peer review aspect of it, but you had these people who were players. Some of them were players and they wrote. Some of them were uh, golf course designers and they wrote. Some of them founded their own journals. They were editors. They traded ideas. It was a very robust intellectual period of of golf course design and discussions about design that happens from the late 1800s all the way up through the end of the 1920s, basically. So, And, and on top of that, you have so many historians – professional and amateur, however you want to describe it, digging into this material. And there are uh, so many people pouring over old newspaper articles and you have, uh, they're taking apart these books and there's always this sense of discovery and digging deeper and digging deeper into this, this time period. And that just kind of seems to stop after the great depression. One, the, the practitioners are not writing nearly as much. No, I think from the architect's perspective, I think when, when, they developed the American Society of Golf Course Architects. I think they, I'm suspecting they took a lot of those discussions instead of making them external, they took them internal and started maybe talking about them amongst themselves rather than out in public. And and then lastly, for whatever reason, there's, there's just hasn't been a lot of curiosity about post-depression, post-World War II architecture and, uh, and, an under, or, or, and anybody trying to really get to the underlying underpinnings of what the designers and the people of, of those generations were really thinking. So, it, so it's, it's, it's an overwhelming amount of material up 
before the Great Depression, and then there's a lack of both material information and curiosity that happened after that time period. I completely agree, and that's where I think my connection with sort of modernism, um, with that post-World War II depression era, uh, is the first to really analyze golf course architecture following that and explain in any yes, any capacity sure. um, what was happening. And the bigger thing is, you have to start somewhere. Um, I, I, I completely understand that, you know, so the chapters like the 1970s aren't as broad, but then there's chapters like the 1980s that are quite substantial, multiple pages, um, and sort of explain that connection with modernism much more substantially. And same thing with the 1950s. I think you're 100% correct with the American Society of Golf Course Architects. Their understanding and discussions of golf architecture became internalized within that society. There's no doubt. Um, the architect became a professional, uh, an expert, um, whereas before they were really looked at as um, somebody that would visit and be more of a designer versus a an engineer of sorts. And I feel like that's the separation that happened prior to World War II is we, we golf architecture became more aligned with landscape architecture. And it's funny, if you study landscape architecture now, there's the same sort of movements in the industry of people getting back out into the field and, um, you know, scientific, ba evidence-based design and working with site-specific ideas as opposed to, you know, just incorporating whatever worked on the last job. The same thing happened there. And it's, we're, we're seeing that um, understanding of and appreciation of the past more than what happened following World War II. There's just people were just looking forward. There's, there was a change in mindset, you know, right across North America and uh, across most of the world. Uh, people just wanted to look forward, and modernism was sort of all encompassing. And it didn't happen, you know, in a blink of an eye. It was it was slow. You could see the the progression in Trent Jones's portfolio. You know, I, I, you know, I, when we last talked, I pointed you to the Oakland Hills uh, photo that, you know, famous 51, where he went in there and altered it for the open. But if you look at the aesthetics of the bunkering, it doesn't look like what people would assume it would look like. It's still rugged. and No, it uh, looks awesome. Yeah, it looks awesome. But it what looks he, like what, what guys are building nowadays. Exactly. Um, but what he did was elsewhere. He pinched fairways. He pinched landing zones with bunkers on both sides. That was the that was the slow change. That was that was the not just the start of it, but it, that was what put that bug in other people's head, and it was adopted elsewhere. You know, the sort of amoeba-shaped bunkers came out of you know the, the clean lines and the, the the desire of man to impose uh, sort of this cleanliness on golf courses, um, and it wasn't written about. So people couldn't understand why it was being done. They just saw the product and people tried to copy it. And unfortunately, that's worse when it's not being discussed because people don't understand it. They just see it and try to duplicate it. And then you get faulty knockoffs. You know, you get, the, like I said, the plastic surgery look where um, it just doesn't work. And unfortunately, those were the biggest boom eras of design. We, had, we saw more courses built in you know, the 60s and 70s and 80s, the early 90s, than any time else in history. And unfortunately, that was the product. 
you know, you mentioned a minute ago your intention to work with superintendent groups and, and try to uh, get this book in their hands as a, a learning instrument and also how people in the design build uh, side of the profession right now often work try to work hand in hand with the superintendents from the very beginning of the project to create this synthesis. That reminded me of something going back to your modernism comment. I think what happened after World War II is this incredible jump in science and and technology, Mm -hmm. uh, including the uh, advent of not just machinery, which is important because, you know, now you can different types of mowers and, and ways you can maintain a golf course through machinery is important, but also through fertilizers and pesticides and herbicides and new strains of grasses. And there's such a jump in knowledge about how to grow good grass. And I think it was a real contrast to the majority of courses that were built in the 1920s when they really struggled most places. I, I know there was great grass on, on many places, but I would say the, the bulk of courses who didn't have big budgets, there was a real, there isn't a lot of understanding about how to, how to grow grass and how to prevent weeds and how to, you know, the irrigation was not as prevalent. So what happens after the war is you have this incredible jump in technology and understanding from an agronomical standpoint, and also new equipment that helps it, helps you maintain golf courses easily. So I've almost gone from thinking that the big switch after World War II was, it was almost like a de-emphasization of architecture and architects. I think architects' influence decreased as clubs, whether it's a city course or a private club, their emphasis switched to growing great grass and keeping maintenance budgets under control. After World War II, there was an incredible labor shortage. Labor costs skyrocketed, and you know clubs could just not afford to hire men, manpower. So they had to come up with ways to be more efficient in how they, they took care of their golf courses. So then you see there's all this, you know, these superintendents kind of take over, and they talk about we need to minimize slopes. We need to smooth out bunker edges. We need to like build large greens with fewer contours so you can mow them with machinery. So it's almost like this ties right in with the concept of modernism and forward thinking. They really believed beginning after World War II that they were building better golf courses than the people were in the 1920s. They thought those courses were often crude and poorly built and the construction methods were uh, rudimentary and they were what they were doing beginning in the around 1950 was state of the art. I mean, this was the future. You think about all the other architectural and technological advancements that were happening in society. And this would have been part and parcel with those other uh, momentous technological science age, atomic age breakthroughs that they were seeing everywhere else. Uh, I completely agree with that when it comes to the superintendents having a much bigger role. Because the important thing to understand here is as the golf architect became a professional that had a distinctive office and did plans and visited occasionally, the the main man on the ground or woman uh, was the superintendent. And their, their goals, their vision, their understanding of what great golf is, is completely different than a golf architect who's traveled the world and studied the great golf courses. So the the understanding of what great golf was became that superficial layer, the turf, the product, what it looked like. Um, not the angles, not the width, not the contour, not the variety. Uh, um, that was kind of put aside, especially as the golf architect became, it became a business of how many courses can you make? Because the, uh, the opportunities 
were there. Um, where really in the 1910s, even 1920s, what we consider the golden age, you know, there's a few people like uh, Ross that were pumping out quite a few courses, but overall there wasn't the, you know, the variety, there wasn't the surplus that was happening later. And he had his core group of guys that would still be on the ground. Uh, the builders, his foreman, his construction foreman, they still operated design build practices. Even in the UK, um, Martin Hotry, the, his, his grandfather's firm, up until World War II, was a design build firm. Following that, they liquidated the uh, construction component of their business. The industry was changing. The architect was becoming more akin to a landscape architecture in office practice as the technologies of surveying, engineering, and everything advanced. They were able to separate themselves and hire construction groups that could come in and take care of these, uh, these, these, these other elements. And the understanding, the principles of design, the bones were changing. They had changed. So when you give you know, simplified bones to uh, construction people that haven't seen great golf and a superintendent whose focus is uh, uh, emerging science, which is completely understandable. But the other thing is with all these courses came an absence of selecting sites. So you have the proliferation of clay heavy soil sites that emerged following World War II where when, you, when they started, you know, when these uh, turf sciences that were developed on you know, Long Island with great sand base were exported elsewhere and copied by everybody else, the courses just didn't play the same. And 20, 30 years later, you know, the average person's understanding of how golf, golf is supposed to be played as a bump and run game, it completely changed. And it was the separation between design and maintenance and technology that made that gap even larger. But modernism and the ideals of it sort of making that gap between them broader. I, I, I often think that the, that the story of golf course architecture, at least in America, is, is really the story of, te- of technology. And technology is really the story of our, of our country, too. I mean, everything, technology changes culture in so many profound ways. We, we've seen it just in the last decade with social media and the way we relate to each other and, and communicate on a personal level or impersonal level, if you will. And I think that with technology, you see, you see a slow progression of technology through the early part of the 1900s, and it's, it's, it's building at a very healthy rate. And, and as it develops architects and, and investors and developers and, and so forth are able to incorporate it at a very natural pace. And then you then you have this jump after World War II when, when all of this technology is, is suddenly unleashed. And I really, I really do believe that's an accurate description. You know, you went from mm-hmm. people tightening their belts through the Depression and, and rationing during World War II and uh, the, the conversion of, of factories and industries to the war effort. And then when the war is finally over, you have all of this this build up, this pent up technology and resources and, 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 and it burst into the marketplace and, and manifests itself in so many different ways. And in golf, it really is a, a, a golden age of, of agronomy and a golden age of machinery and equipment. And I think what the story is, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this is 
it really just took a couple of decades for that to work itself out. The mm. scales tilted so much toward technology and, and innovation. By the 1960s, I think that we were so infatuated with what we could do with grasses and, and construction methods and efficiency that we really just forgot about playing golf, you know, the, all the things you just talked about, like, you know, playing bump and runs and the shots and the strategies and the, and the angles and the, the contour and all the things that make golf interesting. We forgot about that. And then you, you fast forward all the way up through the eighties and nineties when you take that technology and you, you blow it up. It, it, it just, it comes out in maximalist forms. Now you have even better technology, even greater resources, greater investors, developers. It's like Hollywood blockbusters. You know, you have the, the uh, shadow creeks, which you talk about in the book, you have these massive projects in the eighties and eventually kind of people realize that it's, it's all blockbuster. It's all, you know, it's all surface and there's not a lot of depth. And by the time you get into the 2000s and Bill Core and Tom Doak and Gil Hans and others come around, they, they finally managed to synthesize the technology and what they can do, even downscaling it a little bit, with a re- reclamation of golden age principles. So the story of technology is, is this incredible buildup, and then it has to be kind of tamed, and then you let the old stuff kind of creep back in. And I don't know if that makes any sense the way I'm explaining it, but that's sort of like like the dialectic of how I, and you draw this out in your book, that's how I see the dialectic of golf evolution happening in the United States throughout the 1900s and early 2000s. I agree to an extent. And okay. the, so I'll, I'll, I'll post something at you here. A lot of people blame equipment, they blame, they blame real estate development. The fact is, what do we do when we talked about a great course? When we, you know, a place like Bandon or Pebble. Pebble, great example. Because uh, I just heard you talk about this in one of your latest podcasts. A lot of people, when they talk about Pebble Beach, they talk about lifting that golf course up and putting it on a benign piece of ground in the middle of nowhere, you know, away from the ocean, and talk about how good is that golf course. The, you know the the bones how good are the bones of that golf and a lot of a lot of architects a lot of experts don't come away with the same opinion of pebble as a lot of people that are just looking at the scenery mm-hmm. um, and the reason I make that analogy is because if you look at real estate development the real estate the housing is not the issue it's the terrible golf that was built between it and you could talk about yes the corridors in certain areas are too tight um, on certain courses, but that was established as a precedent from something that had ha- happened prior to that. One of my favorite golf courses in Canada uh, is uh, Capilano, Stanley Thompson course in uh, Vancouver that was designed as part of a uh, real estate development. The thing was the Olmsted brothers were the landscape architects that helped plan that community, and it's flawless. It's incredible. One of the best routings ever. And one of the best communities to drive through. And when you play the golf course, you don't even know you're there. Uh, Fisher's Island is the same thing. It was designed by as part of a, uh, a real estate plan. Going back even further, Garden City, one of the earliest courses, um, was designed as part of a, a bigger plan. You know, the, the technology is not the issue. Yes, I, I agree with you that I think it developed too fast following World War II and that it got away from people. I think the bigger issue is modernism and the way architects were practicing 
they were so detached from their products that people that didn't understand golf were the ones operating the brush. And that's why the products became so miserable. And that's a broad sweeping uh, statement. And there's obviously some quality that was built, but I'm talking in generalities of uh, an era in general. And I think the same thing happens with equipment as it happens with real estate development. A lot of the, the, the finger pointing is elsewhere. And one of the major messages in the book is that all these sort of influences on architecture, they will continue to change. You know, Bill Curran, Ben Crenshaw, Tom Doak, Gil Hans, Rod Whitman, these guys have figured it out for now. As far as how to work with the sites, we're only taking on two or three projects at max at a time. You know, that's one in the planning stage, one in construction, and one wrapping up. Uh, you, you know, I'm sure you've heard that before. But the big thing there is what happens if times change? Uh, we have another golf boom. You know, these everybody's, you know, waving the white flag in the industry when the recession happened. This, this has happened five or six times prior. That's all explained in the book. You know, for different economic reasons. The industry has slumped and expanded and slumped and you know, a thinning of the herd because of what happened in the 60s, 70s, and 80s is not a bad thing for golf. You know, going back to evolution, the weakest is, are going to die and the strongest are going to live. And hopefully the, the strongest have the innate principles, these time-honored principles, the, the proper bones that allow them to live through it. And that's, I think it's strengthening golf. And if we look back at the 50s, 60s, 70s, maybe not so much the early 50s, but starting to evolve into the late 50s, 60s, and 70s of how golf was allowed to change because of, of modernism more than anything and this detachment of uh, what the focus of the architect was. That is what changed golf. And I, I, I don't disagree with you that um, technology didn't play a factor. I think the computer and CAD and everything else played a factor later. But a tool is a tool, and it's the, up to the artist to wield it correctly. And as you said, I think we're doing that better now. And the question, like I said, I pose at the end of the book is we need to understand this history because that can easily change again. Well, uh, yeah, and I think this is what we're both kind of like hit, yeah. hammering on the same nail right now. W what happened in the 1950s and really, but I, I really think it started, I agree with you, I think it was late 50s, really into the 1960s is when we see like a real fundamental shift. If you look at if you look at Trent Jones's courses, first of all, he didn't build a lot of new courses in the 1950s. You know, he only built about maybe 10 new courses. He did a ton of renovations. But those courses, there's original courses that he did, especially the, like right around the 1950 era, they don't look anything like the courses he was building in the mid to late 60s. I mean, they're no. pretty interesting. You see them, they're like, the fairways are, are just as wide as the Golden Age fairways. You know, they, they're 60-yard 60, 60 wide fairways. The bunkering is at a minimum. The greens are big. but they're real, they're, And there's no there's no on the golf courses either and nope. by the time you get into the 60s everything's kind of shrunken down you know you see more pinching bunkers etc etc but going back to the whole point of your book and what you just said it wasn't to me it wasn't just that the architects were uh trading in their paintbrush for you know uh, a drafting board and and a bunch of associates mm -hmm. that did happen but that could only happen in an environment that where, where the, the golfer, the golfing population 
accepted and demanded that. Correct. And so, yeah, it's a little chicken egg situation. And, but so many people were being brought into golf during this period of time. I mean, this is, this is, this 1960 is the launching point for uh, what American golf still is probably, and has been for the, for the last 50 years. And they were eating this stuff up. I mean, this was, this was great golf to them. Now, had they ever played a Seth Rayner course? Probably not. Very few had. So they weren't exposed to anything else, but it was the environment that allowed Trent Jones and, uh, you know, Robert Muir Graves and, you know, the Gordons and uh, guys like that to, to be able and Cornish to, to build these golf courses that we consider now, less than than less than scintillating and it does have to do with construction and techniques and all that stuff but it was the it was the culture that that embraced this style of golf and you can trace it back to television and Arnold Palmer and the PJ Tour and Augusta and that all that all that kind of stuff bring this full circle and this to to just kind of double back on your point and and maybe flesh this out a little bit more what if societal norms change right now we're in an environment where we eat up Sand Valley and Cabot and we want Tara Edy and and not everybody can get there but but we embrace it we would if we could we all would that's kind of where where society and our culture and our economics that's kind of the pocket that we're sitting in right now but in 15 years because of advances in technology or social media or generation Z grows up and the new generation who's grown up on screens and social media, they may not have want anything to do with blowout bunkers and width and, and ground contour. I mean, they, they want something completely different. So what do we do at that point? I mean, we've gone, we, we started off this conversation talking about how we're all really appreciative and excited about where golf course design has evolved to at this point in time, Cabot links, are, are we safe from another change? Should we embrace another change if, if a future generation or culture or society demands something different from their architecture? I, I, I look for the day when um, society will want something different as far as the aesthetics. I want, I want people to want more varied presentations as far as what's being... Is there something... What if it's something more fundamental beyond aesthetics? What if it goes and, to the skeletal structure? And, and that's what I mean. That's where I think... Um, you're hundred percent correct. If we start running and I, I, I say that I question that the last paragraph in the book is, is questioning that, that future history and evolution. And what happens if we lose, we allow the industry to change again. And it's not something that, you know, I have my beliefs. I think the, the honored principles of architecture, those sort of pillars of design need to be upheld. They need to be, you know, any professional, designation the problem with golf architecture at this point is it's really uh, a brotherhood it's a it's a artistic endeavor it's not a professional organization where there's and what i mean by that is in order for me to get my stamp as a planner and landscape architecture i needed to have a defined education a defined mentorship and a defined test to convey the fact that I know what it means to be a professional in that organization. Um, golf architecture doesn't operate that way. And people could say it's because it's an art form, but I think there's an underlying knowledge that the best courses employ, the ones that stand the test of time have inherently in them, the strategies, 
the variety, all the things we've talked about. Um, that needs to be understood moving forward. The the skin, you know, the, the finer elements of the ligaments could change, and maybe the bones can get even more uh, incredible. Uh, we can build on these classic crystals. That would be the ultimate. Um, but we can't lose that knowledge. I think we have to head more toward the professional body as opposed to the art form that, as we said, goes with the beck and whim of social tastes. As you say, we're in an era right now where these millennials are, you know, everybody talks about the fact that their, you know, their, their attention span is less and they're always on their phones and everything else. The thing is, the, the craft market, and I point this out in the book, you know, the top era of design, what was started golf architecture was in the early 1900s where the arts and craft movement had influenced the key players uh, in golf architecture. And you had this sort of more craftsmanlike approach to design, uh, a, a, uh, an appreciation of like the old course and the strategies inherently in there that had evolved over time and made golf what it is in Scotland. And those were for the first time exported to inland courses and allowed golf to thrive for the masses. Well, what are we looking at now? We've got resort golf that is away from the masses on sites ideally posed for golf. And it's there for the, only the people that can get to it. And we're trying to grow the game again in areas of population where we need to take those principles and readopt them. I think it's, you know, history repeats itself. And we're saying this, we're saying the same thing again in golf. And I think we need to learn from these, from this history and understand um, when golf was bad and that could change, but we need to continuously keep up on this knowledge. And I think it's good for golf moving forward. It's, it's the whole point of this book was to sort of educate uh, not just professionals like myself. Um, you know, that's why I did it to educate myself, but uh, to educate everybody that has a passion for golf and is a member at a club uh, and wants to see it do better. I think uh, there's no prescribed remedy across the board. But if you look at, like I said, if you look at the the uh, millennials now, they're, the, the craft beer, the cheeses, all these sort of handmade items that are more expensive, but they're not bought, they're not consumers the way people were in the past. They don't want to buy and buy and buy. They're looking for a few quality items. And I think golf needs, that's, that's where golf is uh, reminiscent of sort of that Heathland era, of the arts and crafts movement again. And we could be heading toward another, you know, if that's the case, what followed that era was the, was the golden age. And hopefully we can build off this knowledge. What we don't want to have happen is that break in the knowledge of a great depression, a world war, uh, something pivotal that changes just everybody's mindset and potentially changes golf for the, for how we deem right now, the worse, um, whether I'm talking to you in 15 years with a second book and we've learned more about this history. Shouldn't take that long. <laughs> exactly. You know, it might be 15, 20, it might be 10 years. Um, well, I just think it's something that it needs to continuously be talked about. Like we talked about in the media, this needs to be a public debate and what's happening with all the podcasts 
and the accessibility of information right now is spectacular. And I think that is probably more than anything any, any individual architect is doing, uh, is helping change, change, the, uh, change the pattern. Right. Well, let's talk about that. I actually had this. Is, this is where I was heading to exactly is how good of a job are we doing as uh, the media, as as golf enthusiasts? How good of a job are we doing of telling the story? Your book is probably like like the the um, shot heard around the world as far as introducing the, the long history and evolution of golf course design and why and where it's coming come and all the contours it's gone through. It's it's their first shot fired in, in a broader education. So. On top of that, are we doing a good enough job to to relay information, true information? We live in an era of fake news. We live we live in an era where uh, facts are disputed. Fa- actual facts are taken maybe as as plausible or as plausibly deniable. And uh, I don't know if that has seeped into golf media yet. But I just wondered, that was the big problem, it, it, it's sort of an erasure of, of golf knowledge or golf communication in the, through, uh, you know, the Great Depression and the World War II. And you come out of it sort of in this informational vacuum where you mm-hmm. can, you know, golf can be inspired by other things, but there wasn't a continuation of knowledge. Are we doing a good enough job, and you touch on this, but are we truly doing a good enough job of talking about the things that matter, not talking about what we'd like, not talking about what we think is cool, not talking about what's trendy or, or uh, you know, where we, you know, some of these other diversions, but uh, are we doing a good enough job of taking information, processing it, analyzing it, putting it in context in a way that can be carried forward into the future? Um, I, I wonder, I wonder yeah. about it. I mean, because, you know, it used to be, there's a lot to be said for the centralization of information. You know, in the 70s and 80s and, be, and prior to that, everybody got their news from from a few general sources, and the news was mostly the same. And we had a healthier dialogue and conversation about what was happening in our world. Now it's decentralized, and you get your news from wherever you want. And I worry that that's, that is going to make it harder to carry forth accurate messages going forward because because you know some people listen to my podcast some people listen to others some people don't listen to podcasts some people just read magazines some people just go on bulletin boards on the internet i mean it's it's so decentralized i don't know if there's a Mm -hmm. coherent or reliable message that's being carried forward well there's not um damn (laughs) what you guys are doing is incredible because in my eyes it's it's the pirate radio of golf architecture it's this underground movement of informed criticism of what's going on in the industry that is so hugely impactful for people that are listening. Um, the problem is, and the same, the same goes with our news here in North America right now, is the big outlets are still handcuffed, muzzled, whatever you want to say, by certain interests, you know? Whoever's buying right. the whoever's buying the big double page advertisements has a bigger stake than the truth, and unfortunately, that's not the way information is supposed to be conveyed. And you know, hopefully, I'm not too sure what the way around this is. I think it's just the the better content, the more honest appraisals we can do. Um, it's not just about you know a lot of the issues with news right now. It's like you, you state the truth, but then you also have to state the opposing side, which is just somebody's opinion, as if it is the truth. 
right. and let and then you let the viewership make up their minds. Yet the way you've presented it makes both seem logical. Yet only one is based on fact. And what I tried to do with this book is just present the evidence, not not present the other side. And sometimes that comes across as though you know you're taking a dig at somebody or but the evidence is the evidence you know history is history and fact is fact and if that's what we present it's up to the individual to make up whether or not they agree with it but if you're just presenting facts at least the information is there and i think it's a wonderful thing what's going on with golf architecture right now is the the variety of the podcasts and the blogs and the articles that are going out i mean that information is there forever, uh, as far as the internet goes, and it's just I think it's 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 not a matter of what you guys are doing; it's a matter of what me, the architect, and people in this industry are doing to put a spotlight on what you're doing. If we believe see, and it, yet, then and yet, here's the problem. So even amongst blogs and podcasts, there's a lot of nonsense. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of, I don't want to call it fake news, but it's incomplete and it's not that, in, it's not that resourceful. It's, it's dubiously informative. Uh, it's also compromised by other interests. Um, so, the, so that's, that's not a good situation. If this mm-hmm. is the driving force, we're in, we're not in a good place. It's, I flip it back to you. This book that you've done is important because one, it's incredibly well-researched. It's based in fact, it's serious. It's a serious book, even though it's accessible to everybody, but also even more importantly, it is written, but not by a historian. You are a historian, but it's written by a guy who has skin in the game, a person who is an architect, a practicing architect and designer. And that's fundamentally what I still think is missing. Why I asked the media question. We don't get it. Tom Doak and Jeff Shackelford and I'm and probably missing some a, a couple other people. Mike Clayton writes a lot. I mean, guys who contribute words, guys who are in design and contribute words, and you're in this group now, are vital. But we don't have enough of them. No, Tom, in the olden days, the architects wrote so much. You knew exactly what they were thinking. You knew their yeah. thought processes. You can go on Golf Club Atlas and, and hear Jeff Brower talk a lot, and some other guys who are great with, and, and that's very valuable. But like, where are the where's the long form essays? Where are the books? Where's the the open debate and dialogue amongst architects, designers themselves? That's what we're missing right now. I mean, I'm a, look. I'm an amateur. I'm just a guy who started the podcast. I should not be held to any kind of standard or be relied upon to convey anything that's valuable in golf course architecture. And I, we, I want to hear from the guys who are actually doing it. That's what's going to matter into the future. And, and I completely agree. And that's, that's one thing that I shine a massive spotlight on in the book is just why the golden age of architecture was so good. It's because of this connection between media and the guys at the head of those magazines, who, as you say, like me, had skin in the game. Tillinghast, Bear, I mean, these guys ran the magazines that, that put a spotlight on everything. And Tom Doak, I think, you know, has held that, has held that torch in the U.S. for far too long by himself. Absolutely. You look, you look at what he did with the confidential guide, and he's, you know, he was critical of his peers, but who else wrote anything of substance to debate what he said? Nothing, because they really didn't have anything, you know, defendable. They were just pumping out 
stuff. If he criticized it, and you look but at it. But they should have. I mean, I'm sure they could have. defend it to themselves. They, they, I mean, they, I'm sure they could defend it to their clients. And, and to be, on, to hear to be honest, that. as an artist, you should be able to. Why are you putting anything in the ground that you can't defend? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Why wouldn't just, you want to have that, have that dialogue? Exactly. So that should have happened. Um, but you, you, you do have people on that side, you know, Mike Hurston, who's, uh, a member of the, That's right, Mike uh, who's, who's a, a prolific writer. Um, yes. but he writes more on history and the fundamentals of construction. Um, nothing really is opinionated Two people here in Canada who are mentors of mine. Um, one directly because he worked with Rod Whitman, uh, Jeff Minge, and also, uh, Ian Andrew, who's, uh, uh, a good friend. Um, both of them are prolific writers and I think it's Friends something of the podcast yes, I have ex- to point out <laughs> exactly and it, it's something where if you look at and it, it's, it's funny because if you look at the numbers of uh, Canadians versus Americans you know we have 10% of your population let yet look at who's actually contributing to the writing I and, know. and voice right now we are much bigger uh, a much bigger voice than you know uh, the populations would otherwise dictate and for whatever reason, I think it has to do, you know, just with, I don't know, maybe our access to some of that information in classic golf and maybe Stanley Thompson courses being upheld and just maybe having a bigger view of what's um, going on internationally in the UK and America versus just, you know, Americans are typically uh, focused on America, which is which is fine. Uh, Canadians just maybe being smaller, we're more focused on what everybody else is doing. And I think that, that that's playing a huge role. I think we need to get back to the point where we're not critical of each other, but we just ask why, you know, make people defend what they're doing. And that yeah, should put, be, your, put your thoughts down on paper or out on the air and debate them and make sure that, you know, they, they hold up to reasoning and yeah. it creates dialogue. Oh, well, and it, it, it creates something that it, it inspires people. It, it allows the public to just have a better understanding and an opportunity to care more deeply about the courses they're playing as opposed to just, you know, just seeing that skin, you know, there's no other way, you know, basically that discussion is the x-ray. It's the only way we can show them the bones. How else are they supposed to be educated on it? We can't expect them to, you know, you know, to have a thousand book library and read everything that's out there. Uh, That's just, that's not right. Mm -hmm. Um, So we need, we need to give them glimpses of, of, of that underlying structure that makes these courses great. And that only happens if we're able to debate it in a, in a way that's accessible. Um, and that's tough. We, we, you know, media news, everything, as you said, uh, has evolved to just be so, uh, whitewashed and, you know, opinions are, you know, always need an opposing opinion, you know, just here's my opinion. It's based on fact debate me that debates are something that i think we need to stop being so just so sensitive for i think golf golf would be a lot better for it if we get a little bit more passionate about things yeah it's it's just it's the some of that's the just the climate we live in too you know that everybody takes a takes the 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 concept or the, the the opening opening like salvo in it what should be it could or be a, a good debate is taken as an insult and then it just devolves into you know defensive posturing and name calling and ad hominem attacks and um at least that's the way it plays out and like in, in the internet era and on social media which well, maybe and, that maybe they needed to be taken you yeah, know into and, into print you know like have a like a, a, a paper dialogue 
back and forth between people like well, in the old days in the journals. My undergrad in planning, um, I, I did a specialization in design and most of what we did was based on, uh, architects, the profession of architecture and urban designers coming in and teaching us how to, what we called, you did design projects, but along the way you had what were called crits critiques where you had a panel of people that were a lot more experienced than you. Basically their job was to pick your work apart. And what I learned from that was you better be able to defend everything you do and you better, you know, give it the due thought necessary to be worthy of what you're putting on the ground. You know, some of these designs were community designs, massive, you know, thousand, fifteen hundred people living there. And it's important that those designs are reflective of all the various inputs and and perspectives on what makes that place great because everybody varies what you know what one person opinion differs from somebody else's and the same thing happens with a golf course there's now we're in you know there's environmental influences there's maintenance influences there's ownership influences there's you know our our time-honored idea of what makes great architecture uh and there's there's my personal influences on what i see as good architecture and they all need to coalesce into one design and it's up to the architect to sort of spearhead that and come out on the other side with something that you know makes sense for the product um one last thing to talk about because i've heard you talk about this before and and you've touched on it today is the era that we've entered now and we've been in it and one way to look at it is the design build era and it's the design build model has been the source of most of the most heralded architecture we've seen in the last 20, 25 years. And I'm wondering just that I'm wondering if, if you could share with us a little bit the economic dynamics of that. Obviously, in a, when the recession hit and people had to downsize, design build didn't really take a hit because I'm assuming because their economic model was more efficient. They had fewer mouths to feed. But it, there's still a lot of there still are a lot of mouths to feed. I mean, it, it's not just one. It's not just Tom Doe got on a bulldozer building a golf course. He's got his guys, and then the, he takes on uh, other shapers. And so, I wonder if you could. T- I guess my question. I'll pose it as a question, and if you could elaborate on just the model and and how that's going to work now and in the future. Is it? Do you think that the the firm, the des- golf design firm, is that model forever gone? I feel like there's a lot of I think I think in inside the business there's been a lot of animosity between the guys who are who are architect uh, contractor driven and they see the design build little small crews shuffle around getting all these jobs and doing great work. I, th- I feel like there's some animosity, but is that old model of the the uh, contractor architect model is that is that on its way out? Um, that was a horrible question, by the way. No, no, it's a great question. Uh, that that <laughs> horribly there's, phrased. There's two very different arguments there um what a lot of people from my side the design build i'm one of the few people that when i was doing my master's i went to the other side i was a project manager for contractor for two and a half years because i wanted to see the other side of that business i don't think i could stand beside the research in the book um without having done that you know i i got to shape for mike hertz and um uh did work up here for tom mcbroom and doug carrick um uh, Brian Silva, I worked with him in North Carolina, 
You know, there's a lot of people that I got to work with that sort of showed me that other side of the business. And there's something very nice about having that office when you have a family and you want to come home every night or every weekend, as opposed to go ask the guys that do design build of what sort of sacrifices their families are putting up with for the sake of golf. And the reason we're doing that is because we're super passionate about our product. You know, we care so deeply about golf architecture and the work we're putting into the ground and our products, because when you build one or two products a year, they all better be good or you're not getting another one. Um, that portfolio matters. And, you know, we think about it, I think about it as legacy. When am I leaving? You know, these courses are my body of work. They stand, hopefully stand the test of time. So that, that all goes through my head as to why I can understand why, you know, people with the education I have would choose, you know, cause I could do all the computer work for, you know, I had a five-year program in high school in drafting design. I've got an undergrad in planning. I've got my stamp as a planner. I've got a master's in landscape architecture. Um, as opposed to most guys that, uh, sit in the office to do plans, I can do all those plans. And I'm confident enough to say that with my, I had a, my own drafting design firm in my undergrad, I can run circles around most people on a computer. So I understand the, the other side of this business and the appeal of it. When you have a family, I've got three kids. Um, will that other go away? I don't think so. There's always going to be that draw to pull people in that direction. Um, there's always going to be the contractors there that are going to be willing to do the work for you. The problem is, and what it, the courses aren't the better for it. Um, the product isn't the better for it. The budget isn't better for it. And I'll go to town on anybody that says otherwise, but when you've got an architect who's taking 10% of the project as a design commission, and you have contractors out there in the field that are submitting budgets at you know, minimum 15 to 20% profit for them as a contingency and then upselling any, any change as a change order, the budget balloons, you know, as opposed to us that go in and the client literally pays nothing but the bills as to what we're doing. And it's in a discussion. It's not like we just go out there and do whatever we want. If they, if we've talked about something and we can say we can do this and they don't want to do it because of it comes back to money, you don't do it. Um, but, when the, when the client pays literally the bills and we're out there in the field generally working with their guys if it's an existing course because, you know, at least, you know, five, six, nine holes are closed at a time. They've got maintenance guys that aren't, you know, don't have the, the jobs they're normally doing. Uh, we can bring them on under our, our wings and they can help with bunkers. That way when we leave, they have a, a bigger connection to the product. They care more about what was there because they helped build it. And the budget is the budget. It's whatever, you know, it's, it's time and materials. And the client pays the materials. Our times are pretty much there. Uh, they'd be the same time as any sort of contractor, except if we want to change something in the field, we can do it. We don't have to wait around for the architect to show up spinning our wheels, which I've done as a project mm -hmm. manager, wasting time having guys re-rake areas because you're waiting for approval to proceed. That's wasted time. It's wasted money. And when you have a contractor that's got 15, 20% profit in, even 10%, you know, when we're try charging a design fee of 10% as well, well, that other architects is actually inflated because they've got 
as opposed to just having the materials and time, they've got profit of the contractor built into it as well. So inherently, we're the design-build method is more economical. It's more time-efficient. And that's what we've seen with the, with the recession. That's what it's produced. We've had people that work in the field that are not only to be, be able to build, in my opinion, a better product because the artist is holding the paintbrush, but it's more timely and economical. And it can be, it can be tailored to the size of the jobs. We've had, we've had jobs where we've gone in where they wanted to keep uh, all 18 holes open when we're doing uh, bunker work, and we've literally had me and another guy and a couple maintenance guys. Or we've done, you know, big full-born new jobs where we've got six, seven key shapers, some local talent that's just moving material around, and we've got a superintendent that's been hired that's, you know, seeing everything as it's going into the ground and having their say. This is before the course is even open, so you can really tailor it to suit the the client. Whereas if you if you're a contractor, you want to do everything because you need to keep all your guys busy and your equipment busy, and you know it's. It's about how much money you're making when you get out of there. I don't know if you're in a position to answer this question, or you may not feel comfortable if you are, but do you think that the success of the design-build design model, because it's it probably undercuts a lot of age-old industry assumptions, does that create resentment from the old older generation of architects, I guess, who only knew contractor model? Um, I, I'm sure it does for some. Um you know, there's some like the ones I respect are the ones that um, can defend both sides or defend what they've done. Mike Hurdson's one of those where I've talked to him and he doesn't shy away from the fact that he couldn't have done it any other way with his family. He's still out there on site all the time. Uh, his knowledge and study of golf architecture with all his literature is probably second to none. It doesn't mean do I consider his courses as good as Kerr Crenshaw or Tom Doak? No, that's my personal opinion. Some others would probably lean to his side, and that's nothing against him or what he's done. Um, I think the quality of a lot of his stuff is quite good. Now, when you've – as far as other people, like I've got Ian Andrew, who's a good friend up here, and his one of his very good friends at the American Society of Golf Course Architects is Gil Hands. And he's probably one of the few guys that he started with Doug Carrick up here in Canada in that sort of, you know, he had a landscape architecture degree, worked in the office and still does plans. Um, you know, I've had those conversations with him where if I think if he could go back, he would do more like Gil and do that in the field method. But that just wasn't there when he was coming up. That wasn't who his mentor was. You know, that wasn't the opportunity he was presented with and he's made the best from it. Is he bitter for what the industry is becoming? I don't think so. I think he can recognize that it, it's good for golf right now. Um, and he's actually contributed to several Gill projects, you know, just gone down and helped with finishing or yeah, different, right. different things. And, and, you know, I've heard him talk about that on your podcast. Um, so th there's going to be the guys out there that see it as if they're still practicing, see it as sort of a, you know, a detriment to their future and ability to get work. But I think it's something where the, the key, the best guys will evolve and adapt. And that's, that, you know, that's kind of the staple of the, the industry. When it's good for golf, at the end of the day, that's all that matters. It's not about personalities and opinions and somebody feeling, you know, their, their, 
what they're doing is not as good as somebody else. If, if, if you, like I said, if you've done your homework, if you can defend everything you've done, uh, if, if, if you're passionate about what you do and that gets into the ground, there's some wonderful work by people that work in an office, you know, especially a lot of the renovation guys that were working, you know, Brian Silva, I respect what he's done, you know, Ron force. Like there's a lot of guys that are doing incredible work that operate in that office structure. It's nothing against that. It's when you look at the future and you know, where we are in the economy right now, it's better for golf. And it can, if it can be better for your client when you get out of there, uh, if you can leave them with a, a less of a price tag and ideally a better product, you're setting them up for success. And I think it's important to point out that just because a, an architect or designer is using a contractor to do the, you know, the shaping work on a golf course, everybody uses contractors for irrigation and, and drainage Definitely. and things like that. Yeah. But when you're talking about shaping features and you're contracting that out, it's important to note that that doesn't mean the product is, is substandard. Um, I, I, you look at, if you bring up Brian Silva, like, I don't think anybody would go and look at his restoration projects and say that it, it was anything other than top quality work. And that's that he wasn't on a bulldozer doing that. Like he contracted that out. So exactly. it goes back to who your contractors are, how much, you know, can you convey what you want them to do in a meaningful way so they're, they can execute it to your vision and efficiently. And then it comes back to, is the client happy with the cost? If they can afford the cost, if it's slightly more to do it that way and they're not, they don't have a problem with it, then no big deal. But it is just, we're talking more about just the general structure of golf course design operations. And, and I mean, the big difference too is when we're design building in the field, we've got young guys that are passionate about architecture. If they were working for a contractor, they wouldn't have a, a, an ounce of say in what the product looked like. Meanwhile, when I'm out there with Rod, even when we were at Cabot and I'm, you know, early twenties and, you know, green as all could be the mentorship that I got to ha experience out in that site, build it and learning from how we were changing it and the comments and, you know, just growing as a designer in the field, that's where golf is better. You know, we're, we're breeding architects as opposed to just operators. You know, there's a big difference between a shaper and an operator. I've met some incredible guys that have worked for contractors that are incredible operators but if you want to have a discussion with them about why this bunker is here or the strategy of the hole or how we can change this little contour to better better affect golf play, they don't care. They don't know. Some do. And they probably better off switching to the design build method because they, they could contribute. Uh, and I think that's the biggest thing. It's, you know, whether you think one guy um, can come out or, you know, whoever's representing him visiting a job site. And can in that, you know, few trips around, you know, even if they're visiting once a week, if they're not there every day, the ability of them to comment on every little detail is not going to be able to happen. You know, I still believe that you need to be out there in the field. And there's some, there are some guys that devote one specific person and that's out there on the job site every day and they don't operate equipment. They're just overseeing everything. And I think that's hugely beneficial to the job, but I think that still doesn't compared to having five or six guys like that that are actually running the equipment. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it's just, it's just uh, to me, it's a common sense thing. It's whether you want one architect or technically, you know, in the case of Tom Doak, look at the guys he's working for him. They could be their arc, they could be an architect in their own right. They you are. Know, Rod, exactly. Yeah. Bill Corr and Ben Crenshaw, same thing. Rod Whitman, same thing. 
You know, you're not hiring one guy, you're hiring at least three or four for your job. Yet, you know, you got that big guy's name on it, but you know, there's always going to be somebody out there with a passion and knowledge for design working on it, you know, making sure all the details are there and just laboring over all of them, you know, just trying to get it perfect, you know, whatever that is. So I think that's a good place to stop. It's kind of brings the conversation full circle, going back to this theme of, of evolution, natural selection, going through mutations, getting to a, a point, and then also having that point, interestingly, be we're kind of back to these principles and the beauty of golf course design from an era when it really worked well, when everything was built by hand. Now they had contractors back in the 1920s, but it was a lot more in the field work uh, than there was in the 1960s for sure. But uh, I was going to say, speaking of Brian Silva, you know, I've, I was talking to him on the phone the other day and I've been doing some research and trying to read up on, you know, the post-war era and how we got just kind of exactly what you, what you did in your book and try to just maybe kind of dig down into a certain era, the post-war era, a little bit deeper to get my understanding. And I was just doing the same thing, telling him the same things I, I said to you earlier and, you know, about the superintendents, they had all these new tools and technology to use. And I thought that swung their ideas about golf course design in a certain direction. And they mm-hmm. talk about smoothing out bunkers and getting rid of steep faces and sharp edges and even filling in bunkers. And I wasn't justifying that at all. As you know, like I'm not, I'm not saying that was a good thing. I'm saying it was a bad thing, but, but why there's, there were justifications and I'm, I'm going on and on. And he's, you know, Brian, he like, he just like was cutting me off and was like, no, he's such an evangelist about <laughs> the, the purity of, of the golden age guys and Seth Rayner. And, and he's like, no, you don't fill in bunkers. That's terrible. It was awful. There's no way around it. You can't justify it. <laughs> he just was well, not but, having but any, it, any of it. Yeah. But if you look at, so economy is so important. If you look at the work of A.V. McCann and Tillinghast, when the great depression happened, they went around to their own courses and started advising them how to fill in bunkers. I know. You know? And Silva hates that. I mean, he well, can't stand it. But it's history. <laughs> you know, it I, is history. No, that was my yeah, point. Is that, yeah. is that well, I, I'm like, I'm trying to understand it. And these guys weren't just, I like, I don't think that, that McCann and Tillinghast or, or Robert Trent Jones or, or anybody, I don't think they were hacks. I think they were incredibly talented. I think Robert Trent Jones was visionary. He was one of the most visionary architects that we've ever had, but just like a filmmaker who makes films that maybe don't stand the test of time or, or you just don't personally like because they're indulgent or whatever, it doesn't mean they're not great at what they do or they're not visionaries. And there's motivate, as we've been talking about over and over again, there's a reason for this. There's economical issues. There are these, these decisions weren't just made because of people were rubes. They were like, they put thought into them. There was a reason for this. And, but don't don't try to have that conversation with Silva because he doesn't care. It's end product uh, all along. Well, and it does matter, but as we've as we said, it's it's an evolution, and we're products of our environment, and so are our courses, and that that needs to be recognized um, when you're working with these varied landscapes and 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 uh, playgrounds for golf. You know that that history matters. You know when are you restoring it to? You know. Pinehurst number two, Pinehurst number four, you know, it, if you if you went back to the the original Donald Ross design, it wouldn't look like Bill and Ben restored it to, you know, they did it a much later in the twenties version, you know, that history matters of when you're trying to put that into place because that designer evolved to and modified that course based on his own influences. Mm-hmm. So if we yeah. don't and we don't have an understanding of this. 
you know, we're not looking at golf correctly, in my opinion. We're not going to be as informed. You know, you can have the opinion that you don't fill in bunkers um, and that more bunkers are better maybe. But, you know, the original Augusta National had 22 because the site and ground was so good for golf. And then, th- you know, maintenance and everything changed, and now they feel like they need more trees and more bunkers and more things that just are skin and not bones. You know, we, we I, I, I love that, uh, hearing that, and it just ties in with a lot of what, uh, what I've put into this book and thought about in the past is everybody in golf needs to sort of understand uh, these fundamentals and how yeah. important they are to golf's future and once once i think we get to that place we're going to be a lot more secure and able to handle any sort of social change that may dictate what we're doing keith appreciate it as always we'll do it again sometime it was always good to talking to you perfect derek thank you Okay. I love Brian Silva. If you haven't had a chance to go back and listen to that episode, you should. It's a great, It was such a great conversation. He's such a keeper of the flame. We were talking about in the 1930s and 1940s and even the 1950s, how uh, superintendents and clubs and even some architects were recommending that bunkers be filled in on some of these courses that were built in the 1900s and 1920s. And I could just it just pained him to, to even talk about that and consider it, even if it was done and recommended by like A.W. Tillinghast, who, you know, interestingly enough, I'm not sure that he ever recommended filling in bunkers on any of his courses. It was mostly, unless I'm wrong, he was modifying other people's golf courses. But it just made Brian Silva cry almost to think about that. Um Hope you enjoyed that talk with Keith Cutton. You know, he mentioned something to me uh, after the, after the podcast offline about with the book how he was trying to make it so it was accessible and entertaining and educational for someone who didn't have a deep background in golf course architecture and the history of design. But he also had to make it historically relevant and well researched and data driven and informative to someone like myself who's really into this stuff. And that that's a tough scale to balance. And he said he'd never really considered it like this before, but it was a lot like designing a golf course, how the role and, and the drive in architecture is to create a golf course that's fun and playable for the beginner and yet also has enough intrigue and interest and challenge to hold the attention of the expert player. And that's, you know, but and, which is a very tough thing because then you have people like Adam Lawrence as Keith mentioned, who wishes he'd gone deeper into like the 1900 Harry Colt period in time, whereas other people might wanted more prehistory, you know, the early stages of golf course development or discovery of old Tom Morris and Alan Robertson. Uh, Then you have somebody like me who's interested in uh, the modern implications and and the back end of the timeline. So it was tough, but Keith did a great job. The book is fascinating, and I hope you got a lot out of that discussion that we had. Just one last quick note. At one point in the podcast, I mentioned that we live in the era of fake news. It's not We don't. We do not live in the era of fake news. We live in an era where there's a bunch of assholes who proclaim that the news is fake, and that's a lie. That's what's fake. There are such things as facts. There, are, there is verifiable information. There is reality. There are responsible, talented, principled journalists and writers who are presenting news that is fact-based. And whether you're talking about golf golf design, politics, history. It is imperative to us to be discerning in our news sources and to understand where the reliable reporting is coming from and to not let idiots and assholes who believe in conspiracies and magical thinking cloud and disrupt the discourse of understanding and intelligent debate. 
A dose of skepticism is healthy. Anti-intellectualism is not. Okay, rant off. Uh, thanks to Keith Cutton for coming back on the podcast and discussing the evolution of golf course design. Thank you for listening. If you haven't followed me yet on Twitter and Instagram, I'm at Feed the Ball. If you haven't had a chance to go to iTunes and hit that subscribe button to the podcast, please do that. While you're there, leave a star rating and a review. I encourage you to go to TalkingGolf.com to check out the Talking Golf network of podcasts. Those include Feed the Ball, I'm There, the State of the Game podcast with Rod Morey, Jeff Shackelford, and Mike Clayton, the Talking Golf History podcast with Rod Morey and Connor Wood and special guests, and keep your eye out for some new podcasts that are being developed and may soon become part of the Talking Golf network. Thanks, as always, to the Sundogs for the music. Thanks again to you. And until we get a chance to do this again, adios. Then I'll just spend the night